Well, now I want to introduce this morning's guest reader. As part of the 25th anniversary celebrations of the creation of the Order of Deacons in the United Methodist Church, we've been inviting deacons who are serving all around the state of Michigan to join us in worship and share a little bit about their ministry and to also share a little bit of God's word as we find it in scripture with us. Now, today we welcome the Reverend Carl Gladstone as he shares a few words about his ministry as a deacon here in Michigan and as he shares with us this morning's gospel reading from the Gospel of Mark. Hi friends, my name is Carl Thomas Gladstone coming to you from the campus of the University of Michigan Dearborn. I serve as a deacon in connection with Motor City Wesley and Dearborn First and United Methodist Church, connecting with students and young adults. We uh, support them in uh, creative witness to the world, $100 conspiracies of goodness, and forming communities of justice all over Southeast Michigan. Today, I am with you to uh, read from Mark 2. One Sabbath, he was going through the cornfields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need of food? He entered the house of God when Abiathar was high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. And he gave some to his companions. And then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for humankind and not humankind for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So last Sunday, we got to hear from a very special guest preacher. Last Sunday, I got to introduce you to my friend, the Reverend Dr. Paul Glass, who joined us from all the way over in Canterbury in England. I got to know Paul almost 20 years ago when Jen and I went to live and serve in the United Kingdom for a while. Getting to know Paul and his spouse Janet was one of the highlights of our time in the United Kingdom. Another highlight of our time way over there on the other side of the pond was living in a place that was steeped in Methodist history. Now, where we lived and served, we were not very far from the place where John and Charles Wesley, two of the founders of the Methodist movement, grew up. And so we made many trips over to the village and the home where they were raised in the Christian faith by their parents, who were both devoted followers of Jesus we also made several trips down to the city of London to visit the home where John Wesley spent the last 12 years of his life. When he was 77 years old, John Wesley built a modest Georgian home in the city of London. And that home where John Wesley lived for the last 12 years of his life, it became the heart of the Methodist movement that was transforming a nation and beginning to spread like wildfire around the globe. And the heart of the house that was at the heart of the Methodist movement was a little room that came to be known as the powerhouse of Methodism. Now this little room is attached to John Wesley's bedroom. 
It's not very big, really a closet. And, and this room has a window, a small window to let some light in. It has a small fireplace to, to keep off the cold in those winter London days. And there's not much furniture in this little room, this little closet, just a, a simple desk and a chair and a cushion for kneeling. And it was in this room that John Wesley would begin each day of the last 12 years of his life. Every day at four o'clock in the morning, he would get out of bed and he would make his way into this little room and he would get down on his knees and then he would begin his day with an hour of prayer. Every day, John Wesley got down on his knees and spent one hour in prayer talking to God because he believed that the Methodist movement would not succeed in transforming the world unless it was built on a foundation of prayer. And he believed that his ministry would not succeed in transforming people's hearts and people's lives unless his ministry was built on a foundation of prayer. And so every day, John Wesley, from 4 o'clock to 5 o'clock in the morning, would pray in this little closet attached to his bedroom that came to be known as the powerhouse of Methodism, the heart of the Christian Methodist movement. It's a highlight of any tour of John Wesley's home in the city of London, that moment when the tour guide allows people to enter one by one and stand in this little space, sometimes even allows you to kneel on the same kneeler in the very place where John Wesley began every day in prayer. It's an inspiring place to visit. I was inspired when I visited there. As a matter of fact, I was so inspired that when Jen and I moved back to Michigan, I decided that I wanted a powerhouse of my own. And so in the first parsonage that we moved into after we moved back to Michigan, I found a little closet it wasn't really being used for anything. And I started setting up my own little powerhouse, my own prayer closet in that unused closet attached to a spare bedroom. I put a, a little bookshelf in the closet and I filled it with devotional books, books of prayers and Bibles. I put a couple of candles on top of that shelf. I put a cushion down on the ground for kneeling. And then I set my alarm for four o'clock in the morning. Because I wanted to follow in the footsteps of John Wesley. I wanted to experience God the way he experienced God. I wanted to find in my own life, in my own ministry, the power that allowed John Wesley to transform the world the way that he did. Now, the next morning, my alarm went off at 4 a.m. I rolled out of bed and I staggered over to the closet and I got down on my knees. I said, all right, God, inspire me. And then I closed my eyes and I bowed my head. And that turned out to be a mistake. I woke up two or three hours later with an awful pain in my neck and a sore back from sleeping in such a strange position. And I realized that probably I was going to have to walk before I learned how to fly. I realized that maybe as I started this journey, I was going to have to set my sights a little bit lower, that I couldn't expect to, to do what John Wesley did right from the get-go. I needed to work my way up to it. And so the next day, I set my alarm for a, a more reasonable hour. And then I got out of bed when my alarm went off and, and feeling rested, having had a good night's sleep. This time I went into my prayer closet and I was determined that I was not going to fall asleep this time. I was determined that this time I was going to spend a good hour, maybe two, in conversation with God. And so I got down on my knees and what followed was one of the most intense moments of prayer that I have ever experienced in my entire life. 
I read prayers from my books of prayers. I spent time pondering devotions from my devotional booklets. I talked to God. I listened for God's voice. I read stories from the Gospels. I was there in that prayer closet for what felt like it must have been an hour, maybe even two hours. And finally, when I felt like I had had my fill, like I had been empowered by all of that praying, I looked at my watch to see what time it was. And that's when I discovered that I had only been there in that prayer closet for 15 minutes. Well, I couldn't believe it. I forced myself to spend another 15 minutes there in the prayer closet because I didn't want to leave until I had prayed for at least a good half hour. And the second 15 minutes were not anything like the first 15 minutes. And by the time I stumbled out of that prayer closet, not only did I not feel empowered, I felt drained and exhausted. And it turns out that experience was a little bit of a sign of things to come. Day after day, Week after week, I went into that prayer closet and I closed the door and I reached out to God in prayer. And day after day and week after week, I came out of that closet feeling farther away from God and more tired than I was when I went in. After a while, I started to even feel like I was maybe beginning to lose a little bit of my faith, like I was drifting away from God. I was losing my faith in myself I was losing my faith in God. I was beginning to feel like a failure in my spiritual life and a failure in my ministry. I was even considering whether or not I was cut out for ministry at all. And it was at that moment, at that moment when I was in the middle of what I realized now was a full-blown spiritual crisis, when I went out to lunch with a veteran, wise, experienced, seasoned senior pastor, As I was eating lunch with this veteran, experienced, seasoned pastor, I started pouring out my soul. I started confessing the struggles that I was having and the challenges I was experiencing in my prayer life and in my ministry. And this pastor, he listened, and then he started asking me questions. First, he asked me about my prayer life. How do you pray? When do you pray? When, when do you feel God moving in your prayer? How do you reach out to God in prayer? And so I told him everything that I just told you about my prayer closet and how I was trying to spend a half hour or an hour or even two hours a day in prayer, just like John Wesley did. And he listened and he nodded. And then he asked me another question. He said, tell me about those moments. Tell me about those times in your life when you have felt most powerfully connected to God. Tell me about those moments when you have experienced God's presence in some powerful, transformative way. And so I started telling him all of the stories of those moments when God nudged me in this direction or spoke that word to me. Those moments when God stepped in and transformed my life and led me in a new direction. And he listened and he nodded. And then when I had finished telling him all of these stories, he said, here's what I hear you saying. If you think about all of the stories that you just told me, I think you're going to realize that every time you have had a powerful experience of God's presence, every time God has moved in your life in a powerful and life-transforming way, it was at a moment when you were in a room surrounded by other people. What I hear you saying, he said, is that you have got a social spirituality. 
You experience God when you're surrounded by people. You experience God in other people. And the worst thing you can do, he said, when you have a social spirituality, is to force yourself to kneel in a closet for a half an hour or an hour or two hours every day, cut off from the very people who help you experience God's presence. It's no wonder, he said, that you're drifting away from God. It's no wonder, he said, that you're feeling disconnected from God. The thing you need to do, he said, is to find yourself a group of people who you can pray with. Get yourself in a room full of people who are all reaching out to God together and see what happens. And so that's what I did. I found myself a group of people who got together every week to pray for the church and to pray for each other. And when I started gathering with those people in that room, reaching out to God in prayer with those people in that place, suddenly it was as if my prayers came alive. It was as if my faith came alive. It was as if my ministry, as if I myself came back to life. I don't think it's exaggerating to say that that wise, seasoned veteran pastor saved my faith and saved my ministry. I tell you all of this today because I want to share with you a very simple lesson. So the thing I hope you are going to learn today is very simply this. You don't have to do this the way John Wesley did it. You don't have to travel the same spiritual journey John Wesley traveled. What makes somebody else feel connected with God might make you feel disconnected from God, and that's okay. What makes somebody else feel spiritually alive might make you feel spiritually exhausted, and that's okay. You don't have to copy anybody else's spiritual journey. You don't have to do this the way that somebody else does this. That's true when we're talking about your prayer life. It's true when we're talking about your, your worship life. And it's true when we're talking about the ways in which you seek and find God's Sabbath rest. In the last few weeks of this sermon series, we've been talking about our culture of overwork and underrest. We've been talking about God's commandment that we find rest, that we find peace, that we take a break from our labors. One of the things that we've learned in this journey is that this commandment that we rest, that we take a break and catch our breath, this commandment was something that God gave the people, God gave the Israelites as a gift. God gave the people this commandment so that they would be set free, set free from their masters, set free from their work, set free from the guilt that we feel sometimes when we stop working, when we take a break, when we try to catch our breath from our labors and we think about all the things that we could be doing, all of the things that we should be doing, all of the things that people expect us to do. God wanted to set people free from those expectations and those burdens. But it didn't take very long before the people, the Israelites, started to take this thing that God gave them as a gift, this commandment that God gave them as a spiritual tool, and turn it into a sort of a, a torture device. It wasn't long before people started arguing about what was the right way, what was the correct way, the proper way, to obey this commandment, to find Sabbath peace and Sabbath rest. In those arguments, they went a little something like this. The religious scholars would all get together and they would say, well, if we're not allowed to work on the Sabbath, then what exactly does that mean? What sorts of things are we not allowed to do? 
And then somebody would say, well, I suppose that carrying a burden is a kind of work. And so can we all agree that carrying a burden is forbidden, is prohibited on the Sabbath? And everybody would nod and say, yes, that makes sense to us. Carrying a burden on the Sabbath is something that we should definitely not do. And then somebody else would ask a follow-up question. Somebody else would say, well, what about if I leave the house on the morning of the Sabbath with a wallet in my pocket? Does that mean that I'm carrying a burden? Does that mean that I'm sinning and breaking the Sabbath? And somebody else might say, what about a woman who puts a clip in her hair in the morning on the Sabbath? Is she carrying a burden? Is she breaking the Sabbath? And what about a man who puts in his false teeth in the morning on the Sabbath? Is that man carrying a burden in his mouth? Is he transgressing against God, committing a sin, carrying a burden and doing work on the Sabbath? And just like that, the conversations that people were having about the Sabbath, this gift that God gave us so that we could be free, free from our labors, free from our masters, free from guilt, just like that, this gift was turned into a centuries-long argument about whether or not we're allowed to put in our dentures on the Sabbath. Well, that argument went on for hundreds and hundreds of years. And year by year, the list of transgressions, the list of things that people were not allowed to do on the Sabbath got longer and longer and more and more difficult to keep track of. And then suddenly, along comes Jesus. Along comes this wandering rabbi, this carpenter from Galilee. And one of the first things people noticed about Jesus, one of the first things that made Jesus enemies in his ministry was the way in which he didn't get all wrapped up and anxious about keeping all of the rules that people had come up with for the right way to honor the Sabbath. One of the first things people noticed about Jesus was that he had a habit of healing people on the Sabbath. When people came to Jesus looking for healing, he didn't check his day planner. He didn't check to see what day it was. He just healed people right where and when he found them. And this made some of the religious leaders and the religious scholars angry. And they got into long arguments about whether or not it was appropriate to heal people on the Sabbath. They said, Jesus, there are six other days of the week when you can heal people. Why don't you take a break on the Sabbath? But Jesus refused to take a break. And so the religious leaders and the religious scholars started following Jesus around and watching, waiting for him to slip up, waiting for him to do something that was obviously work on the Sabbath so that they could catch him in the act. And then one day, as Jesus and his disciples were walking through a field, one day on the Sabbath, it was around lunchtime, and the disciples were feeling hungry, and so they started picking grain. They started picking some wheat to chew as they were walking through the field. And just like that, out of the bushes jumped a bunch of religious scholars and religious leaders who said, Aha! Now we've caught you red-handed, Jesus. Your disciples are picking wheat. And picking wheat is harvesting. And harvesting is work. And work is forbidden on the Sabbath. What do you have to say to that, Jesus? Aren't you ashamed of your disciples? Aren't you embarrassed about your ministry? Aren't you, aren't you ashamed that your disciples don't honor the Sabbath in the proper way? Well, they thought they had Jesus. But of course, Jesus very calmly looked right back at them, completely unperturbed. And then Jesus said one of my favorite lines 
in all of the Gospels, one of my favorite things that Jesus ever taught, one of my favorite things Jesus ever said, Jesus looked at those religious leaders and he said, don't you understand? He said, humankind was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for humankind. The Sabbath was made to serve us. We were not made to serve the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given to us as a gift, he said, but you have turned it into a, a new kind of slavery. You have turned it into a new master that we have to obey. You have turned it into a new kind of work that we have to do. You have turned the Sabbath that God gave us so we could be set free from guilt, guilt into just another reason for us to feel guilty, Jesus said. Don't you understand? Humankind was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made to serve us. Well, one of my deep hopes is that at the end of this sermon series, as we wrap up this sermon series, you are not going to walk away from this series shaking your head and saying, great, now I've got one more thing on my list of, of things I have to do. Now not only do I have to do all of the things I had to do before this sermon series, but I've also got to find a way to, to work a little Sabbath into my life. Now I've got one more commandment to obey. Now I've got one more reason to feel guilty. Now I've got to feel guilty when I'm not working and I hope to have to feel guilty when I'm not resting. My hope is that you're not going to receive this commandment to find peace and Sabbath rest as a burden to carry on our already tired shoulders. My hope is that you will receive this commandment to find peace and Sabbath rest as a gift that makes you more free. My hope is that you will understand that there is no right way or wrong way to do the Sabbath. That what makes another person feel rested might make you feel exhausted and vice versa. My hope is that you will spend a little bit of time pondering what is it that makes you feel alive? What is it that makes you feel connected to God? What is it that fulfills you on your spiritual journey and gives you a sense of peace? And rest. And then my hope is that you will do that. Make space in your life for those things. Receive that time. Receive that rest as a gift from the God who loves you and who wants to set you free. Let's pray. God, give us rest. God, set us free. In Jesus we pray. Amen.